we are in uh, Psalm 129, and, and I think that just recognizing the season, right? The season of Thanksgiving. And, and while this may be a little bit different, singing with, uh, with a song, right? Singing that way, it's still the same, and, and then a drawing for profession, it's still the same story that we tell. Same story that we tell within our homes throughout. The same story that we hope we're sharing with our neighbors through both our words and our lives. And, and that story is, is a story that we celebrate. We celebrate the story of God. And, and how that story has connected us to himself by the redeeming work of the Son. And, and then we're connected into a community, the church, by the power of the Spirit, so that we can contribute to that ongoing proclamation of the good news of the glory of God. That's, that's all of our gospel religion. That's what we do. That's our hope this morning. And so during this Thanksgiving holiday, I've just been thinking about what I'm thankful for. What, what are we thankful for as a people? Um, we're thankful for family. We're thankful to gather together. We're thankful that it's not raining today. That's a, that's a huge blessing. Um, but really one of the things that I was thinking about was I'm thankful for God's word. It's just been uh, really sweet to be in the Psalms for as long as we've been in the Psalms. You guys are kind of all over the place. So if I'm doing this, just because that's where, that's where we're at today. Um, but I, I've just been thinking about how grateful I am for God's Word. You see, it, we have the blessing of knowing God's character, of knowing His thoughts, of knowing His plans, how He has acted throughout history. And it's all been recorded for us to read and to sing and to meditate on and to memorize. And then we hold the Word of God in our hands and hearts and we have this incredible gift. That's what I'm thankful for. What a, what a sweet gift to be able to have that and have access to that whenever we want. Um, you know, we have that, the manifold wisdom of God, the Father, and the glorious work of the Son on display in His Word, and then the powerful revealing of the truth by the Holy Spirit. All of that is, is within our reach. For our eyes and our hearts to, to see it. And so let's just ask that God would open our eyes and our hearts this morning as we read His Word as we're in Psalm 129. And it's going to be a little difficult. It's going to challenge some of it's challenged me this week. It's going to challenge some of us as we read it together. But let's ask that God would, would do that by the power of the Spirit. Lord, we thank you. Um, we thank you that we can come confidently. We come confidently before the throne of grace, knowing that Christ is sufficient. And so as we look at your word, we pray that we would see Christ. We pray that we would be able to see the, the whole story arc, right, of, of creation, fall, but then in, of redemption and glory. Lord, that we would see the way that you portrayed this throughout your word. Pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes and our hearts to see. Give us ears to hear your word. Lord, and may it change the way that we live. May it not just be this consumption of knowledge, but may it transform us in a way that we would go out and contribute to the proclamation of your glory. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, we're going to begin uh, where we should begin, verses 1 through 3. But as we've been in the Psalms of Ascent, right? And so this idea of these Psalms have been given to us. Uh, and they were given to the people of God 
during uh, the time of exile, or and also during the time where they would they would go to their homes and then they would travel back to Jerusalem uh, for these different feasts that they had. They had three different feasts that, that they would call the different all, all the people back to the temple to pray. The temple was in Jerusalem in Zion. So if you've been with us for the last eight weeks, you kind of have an idea of where we're situated in these psalms. Uh, and we've discovered together that they're a collection of 15 psalms, and they would be sung while they were traveling. So people would travel in a group together, they would sing these psalms together, and then often, um, when they got to the temple and they got to Jerusalem, they would sing them on the steps. So they would sing them on the steps of the temple as they were ascending the temple in the presence of God. And, and we've also seen that these are cyclical in nature. They kind of go with the natural rhythms of the people of God as they journey to the presence of God. And there's psalms that, that, some of the psalms are remembering what it's like to be on the road, to be traveling, and to, to have those dangers on the road, and how God protects them during that time. And some of the psalms remind the people that they, where they've come from, and they point to where they're going, and where they're headed. And some psalms are full of metaphor, some are really practical. And often they're kind of juxtaposing the future hope that they have and the current reality of where they're at. And, and that's good for us because we had that same future hope and we had that same current reality. Those things are real. And we get, to, we get to pray these songs together. We get to sing the songs together. But one of the things that's, that's unique about these songs and that continues to challenge us is that all of these songs are corporate songs. Right? They're intended for the full people of God to sing together. And so that challenges our very individualistic, very American understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Um, or what it means to be the people of God. And so I pray that, that God would even challenge that again in our hearts today. That we would be able to see, God, you have grafted us into a people that aren't even like us, that I may not even like. And yet, that's okay. And, and not only is it okay, it's beautiful. A gift of grace that you've made up of people who weren't people. So let's look together at these first three verses of Psalm 129. It says, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The flowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. So even as we begin this psalm, uh, there's this picture being put in our mind of a singular person, probably, that's being abused by someone else, that's being taken advantage of by someone else, that's being afflicted. That's what afflicted means. We see the terms, afflicted me from my youth, the term not prevailed against me, and plowed upon my back, and all those tend to give this psalm a, a personal or an individual feel. Uh, but these phrases, they kind of stir in our individualistic American minds of personal injustice, right? Maybe? But what is the Hebrew psalmist saying, right? What's he communicating thousands of years ago with these same words? Remember several weeks ago we were in Psalm 124, so if, you, if you've got a phone, you can scroll, scroll up to it. If you've got a Bible and, and pages, you can probably turn one page back. But Psalm 124 began this way. It says, this is David speaking. He said, if, I had not, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. So it's the same, same he's using the same verbiage, right? Even 
even the same line in there. Let Israel now say. So it's both a, a personal, right? If, if we remember, David was saying he was recalling a personal experience and a corporate reality for the people of God. The psalmist in this, and we're not sure who it is, it's not defined for us who wrote Psalm 129, but he's doing the same thing. The unidentified psalmist may be remembering a personal affliction, but he's also recalling the affliction the greater affliction done to the people of God by those nations they interact with. The reference to from my youth is likely pointing to, to even, even the beginnings of Israel. right? The beginnings of Israel in, in Egypt, where they were in bondage. Like You talk about furrows being driven across your back, you talk about being tied to a plow, you think of bondage and of people in bondage. right? And that's what the Israelites were when they were in Egypt. They were being taken advantage of for their labor, and they would labor unto God, so they worked really hard, and they were being taken advantage of. could also point to, to maybe later on in, in the time of, uh, of Israel, where they were surrounded by different nations, and those nations war against them, and they would afflict them, right? We, we read about the wars of the Philistines and how they would attack the Israelite people. And so constantly, it seems like, when you look at those books of history, which is uh, kind of Judges through, or Joshua through, the, uh, through Kings and Chronicles, right, you see a lot of war. A lot of the people of God going out against the people that were surrounding them, or repelling the people that they would attack them. So there was this constant affliction that they were going through. Or maybe the psalmist, because we're not sure who it is, maybe he's pointing to that time when they were in exile. And they were captured by Babylonians. And so the people of God were dispersed throughout all of the nations. And they were, they were taken into, into bondage. And then finally they were allowed to come back to the temple. But whatever it is, there was this great affliction that was being done. And it's not that personal idea. It's, it's a corporate identity that they have. Whatever the affliction the psalmist is speaking of, there is much evidence pointing to the fact that it was a corporate affliction of of God rather than a personal and individual affliction. In their commentary on the Psalms, Hubbard and Johnston put it this way. In the invitation, let Israel say, we hear a liturgist encouraging fellow worshipers to testify in the I form. The sufferings of the individual and the community are thus seen together. The oppression of the individual is seen in the context of the corporate body. And national suffering is understood on the level of the individual. The testimony, verses 1 through 4 of Israel, that we have been struck down but not destroyed. If you think about that, you think of 2 Corinthians 4.9. is one that is applied to them since their youth as a people. From their beginnings in Egypt and the exodus through the exile and restoration to their troubles and perseverance in the post-exilic period. Their history is one of resilience. I'll post that so you don't have to write all that down. Um, We'll put it on the website, but it's, it's a great, it just helps us to understand, like, this idea that they had, even when they used words like I and me and my, it's still this corporate identity that they were talking about. They're remembering the affliction of God's people. The psalmist remembers that since the beginning, the people of God had been distressed, troubled, and bound up. They'd been under duress from the nations around them. And the word greatly here is translated as many or much in other passages. The idea, idea that the affliction from without was so insurmountable that it should have destroyed them 
is what the author is remembering. And he's calling the people of God to sing. That's true. Like, it should have destroyed them. But if they are gathered together to sing, it hasn't destroyed them. That's the reality that they're remembering. The aggression that caused pain is so deep and scarring that the psalmist compares it to the weight of a plow on their back. Man, do, do we even have categories for that? We, we, have, we do. We have categories for the affliction that we've been under. If life is hard, this is a song that you can sing. Because we, we, can, we can be real with that reality, that life is hard. We, we feel the weight of the plow. We feel the cutting into the back, the scars, the furrows that are left, and will not go away. And why would this be what they sang? Why would they be so excited about singing this song together? It's in verse 2, it's the second half. It says, yet they had not prevailed against Oh, they tried. And they keep trying. But we're still here. If we are singing this song, there is evidence that the Lord has preserved the people in the midst of affliction. So they sang. They sang boldly, they sang loudly, they sang together as they traveled. And today we sing. As the people of God who are being abused, downtrodden, taken advantage of, maligned and murdered, we sing. We sing because that means that God is still preserving a people unto himself. It's not even about us. It's about our God who is faithful, who preserves a people in the midst of affliction. He's the covenant-keeping God. So we remember that. He's saved and he's grown a nation. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. We're, we're preserved not so that we can just be preserved. We're preserved so that we can proclaim the excellencies of the one who preserves us. And this leads us to the greatest truth stated in this song. Verse 4. The Lord is righteous. Stop there. The Lord is righteous. The Lord that we serve is righteous. He's good. He's just. The Lord Yahweh alone is righteous. He alone is just and good and right king that we desire, that we long for. When we think of a kingdom where the righteous are rewarded and the wicked are punished, that's what we hope for. That's justice. But we're not going to experience it. But we long for it, just as the psalmist longs for it. But most of all, we long for the king who would bring it. Psalm 8, 89, 14 says this, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. You see, Jesus said that God has seen the affliction of his people, and in his steadfast love and faithfulness, he's freed them from their bondage. Not because they earned it, but because he is faithful to his own promise to preserve a people unto himself. He's the one true God, and the truth, his truth is in his faithfulness. It's not even about us so much. It's about God being faithful, because he said, I'm, you are mine, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And so there's going to be a people, because he's declared it and he said it. 
psalmist does not forget the justice of God either. There's a punishment for those who do not walk in the way of the Lord. So we see it in these last four verses. We're going to spend a little bit of time here because I think this is really going to challenge some of our, our way of thinking. The psalmist is, is declaring this. He says, may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder the sheaves of his arms, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. You see, just as the children of God have already sung of his faithfulness to save and preserve, so now they sing of his justice in punishing the wicked, and they cry out for him to do it. They cry out that God would justly punish the wicked. And often we have issues with this. Randy and I were talking to me. She's like, man, I, I don't know if that's the way that I would pray. I don't know if that's what I would say if I was a psalmist. And I said, I don't, I don't know if we can say that. But if, if he's hearing from God, he knows. And he's, and he's really seeing and pressing into that justice piece of who God is. In our minds, we think that this makes God as harsh and cruel. Um, rather than what it is, he's faithful to. Stephen Yuley, and I, I found his book, uh, Longing for Home, to be really helpful in this, so I'm going to paraphrase uh, some, of, some of his points here. But he, he's talking about how it's extremely difficult to grasp these psalms, these preparatory psalms, the, the psalms that would curse wickedness, um, because we have five errors in our, in our thinking. And so the first error that he says is we have a distorted view of Scripture. We often come to Scripture in an a la carte style, uh, picking and choosing, skipping stuff that we don't like, and really clinging to the stuff that we do like, and that's how we approach Scripture, rather than this overarching story that, that all of it points to the same truth. And so we kind of sometimes we'll skip songs like this, because we're like, I don't know what to do with that, so I'm just not going to do anything with it. We, sometimes we see these this Old Testament versus New Testament. Right? There's truths in the Old Testament that are no longer truths in the New Testament. But Jesus said that he came to fulfill all of the law, so we know that that's not true. All of it tells one uh, unified, cohesive story. So if we have a distorted view of Scripture, that can be an error that we have that would cause us not to understand that. The other thing is we can have a distorted view of God. Some believe that the God on display in the Old Testament is the wrathful and and vengeful God, while the God on display in the New Testament is passionate and merciful. And maybe even going so far as to think of like the Old Testament, God the Father, he was a harsh dude, but then he sent Jesus, and so Jesus was this great compassionate dude, and so now we have them both kind of in two, two separate people. But the reality is that that would, that would destroy the triune God that we, both, that we confess and sing and, and say that we believe in. So that can't be true either. God has to be consistent from the very beginning all the way through Scripture. And so maybe that's one of the errors that we make. And even if we don't say it like that, because it sounds a little ridiculous when we say it, somehow it seeps into our thinking sometimes. And so let's just be honest about that. And let's say, God, I want you to open my eyes to see how you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That your story is the same one that reaches from the very beginning all the way to glory when we will do it again. The third one that he says, and this one's probably where we're all going to start to squirm a little bit, 
is we have a deficient view of space. We've categorized so much of human behavior as being caused by nature or nurture, thereby relieving us of the responsibility for it. That, that's, a, that's a whole philosophical mindset that, that we press into. We think, uh, what, what caused that man to sin? People would talk to Jesus. Well, why is that? Why does this guy sick? Is it because of what he's done, or was it his parents? Right? Is it nature versus nurture? And, and what Yuli says is this. He says, but the Bible paints, uh, talking about whether it's our genes or our upbringing, he says, but the Bible paints a very different portrait of our condition. It makes it clear that our problem resides within. Nurture and nature may exacerbate the problem, but they aren't the problem. This issue is our depraved heart. In every sin, there's a spirit of atheism, rebellion, hatred, and murder. Until we grasp this, the imprecatory psalms, psalms remain a closed book. We might have a deficient view of sin. We might think it's not as bad as it is. talked a little bit about that earlier, too. Uh, a fourth error that we may have is a, a diminished view of justice. We have a concept of justice. It says its purpose is rehabilitation rather than retribution. Because of this, the wrath of God is incompatible with our sensibilities, and we blur the lines between self-seeking revenge and God-glorifying justice. We need to see God's justice as an expression of His goodness in condemning sinners, pointing to the final judgment. And we see that in 2 Thessalonians 5, 1, 5 to 10. So, if you'll turn there with me, because I think it's worth spending a moment there reading it together. Five verses, First Thessalonians, or Second Thessalonians, chapter one, verses five through ten. Second Thessalonians one, five through ten. It says this: This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony of you was revealed. To think that uh, that God is all about justice in the Old Testament, and that the New Testament is all about compassion, and then we read a verse like this in the New Testament, and we wrestle with this inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. See, there's a punishment for sin. If the Bible is true, and we can't just take bits and pieces of it we have to believe the whole of it, then the punishment for sin is death and eternal separation from God. That's, that's the punishment. We gloss over that. We tend to think that justice is not that big of a deal. It'll be okay. And here's the, here's the fifth reason that he explains it. And it helps us to understand why we think that justice is not that big of a deal. It says that we have a defective definition of forgiveness. We've turned forgiveness into this this emotional feeling. We bought into the lie of therapeutic forgiveness, ceasing to feel anger over a wrong done to us. 
turning forgiveness into an emotion. In this light, we see God's forgiveness as an emotional change on his part, leading, up, leading to our unconditional forgiveness. So God suddenly changed his emotion towards us, and now, instead of being a wrathful God, he's a, he's a compassionate God. No, that, that would be unconditional forgiveness, but God's forgiveness is conditional. There's a condition for it. See, this is how it works. How does God forgive, he says? There are two essential ingredients, justice and repentance. God forgives those who repent on the basis of his satisfied justice in Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. As a result, they're reconciled and restored to him. But there's no restoration without forgiveness, and there's no forgiveness without repentance. All this to say, God's forgiveness is conditional, not I read that and I was like, man, I, I tend to think that it's unconditional forgiveness all the time. I forget. I forget that Christ went to the cross and suffered the wrath that, that this psalmist is crying out for. He's, he's crying out, right? That they would experience brokenness, that, they, that their, their, uh, their grass would wither and die, that they would be turned in their shame and turned backward. All of these things, right? That's what I deserve. Because of my sin. And so I have a hard time with the song because I don't think that my sin is that bad. I, I think that that's wrong, that somebody should, should have to suffer those things, but that's the reality of the payment of sin. I'm thankful for these insights from Stephen Dooley because it allows us to read this psalm and rejoice. Right? We can read the whole of it and say, man, God, you are good. You have redeemed the people and you've, you've punished the people. And all of that is good because in that good kingdom that we long for, that's what we want. We want a just God. And we can rejoice in the justice of God, that he will right every wrong and punish evildoers. And we can pray that those who are not in Christ will not benefit from their wickedness, but they'll wither away. We can hope that the wicked will not prosper in their harvest. We can cry out that those who hate Zion, those who hate God and his people, would be put to shame and turned back. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. The righteous walking in blessing and the wicked reaping the wrath. Go back to verse 4. The Lord is righteous. He said that that's the truth. But look at the rest of verse 4. He has cut the cords of the wicked. How has he done this? How has he cut the cords of the wicked? How is there no, no more bondage? No more slavery? Because of what Christ has done. See, we are both made righteous and we're set free in Christ. We talked about the atonement, right? That Christ on the cross paid my wages. Right? That in his death and in his crucifixion, my sin was paid for. But in his life and in his resurrection, in his rising from the dead, I am set free. The cords have been cut. We no longer have to walk in those things. We can walk in the righteousness of Christ. We can move out of those things. And we can proclaim, hey, if you see any of that in me, it's because of Jesus. He's cut those cords. And he can cut the cords that you walk in you would trust, if you would repent, if you would turn away from those things. And so, we can sing this song. 
pray this song. We can rejoice in this song. We can say, hey, if you're wicked, I, 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 I hope you're not walking in one. If you don't know Christ, because otherwise you'll be you'll just live in ignorance. Right? If you walk in the blessings and if you reap all this harvest and you don't know Christ, you're going to get good things and you're not going to get Jesus. And that would be awful. So I pray that you would you'd be cut off, that your your harvest would not be bountiful, that your your grass would wither and die, that you would be shamed. So that in that shame, you would be turned. So that in that moment of, of brokenness, you may find repentance. You may repent as we've repented. And, and rest in what Christ has done. All for the glory of God. That's the key. Like we, we keep thinking, hey, that's a great ending. But that's not the ending. It goes on. Remember that Second Thessalonians that says that... They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to His glorified saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony is to you the marveling the glory of God. The story that He's written that He would save a people for Himself. So we sing. Right? So we sing the song together. We rejoice in it. It brings joy. It brings some reality of like, hey, there's there's some real work to be done. There's a calling out to be done. There's a there's a proclamation that needs to be done that the chains are cut off, that the, the, the cords are are broken. And so we go out in the presence of God, singing this song together and rejoicing in what God has done. Pray. God, we do thank you. God, we thank you for your kindness that you have redeemed the people and that we can gather here together and that means that you are continuing to preserve the people so that you will be made much of for your glory. God, I pray that that reality would we'd be able to sit in that and wrestle with that this week. Pray that you would lay people on our hearts to go to and tell of the good news of Christ Lord, and that, that those around us who don't know you would, would not walk in ignorance. God, but they would long for the hope that we have and that we would share that hope with them. God, may we be bold in our proclamation. Not so that we look courageous, but so that you receive the glory. We trust you in your name we pray. Amen.